Hello again, listeners, and welcome to episode 31 of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who was very keen to come on the pod and talk about how mental health has become a part of his life in recent years. We met through a big friend of the pod, Alex Hensman, who my special guest went to university with, and he's another man doing great things to break the stigma around men's mental health. So I'm delighted to welcome Sam Evans onto the Just Checking In pod. Sam works in the pharmaceuticals industry as a category manager. Originally hailing from Aberdare in the Welsh Valleys, Sam now lives and works in London. Sam, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. How are you and how are you coping with the lockdown, pal? Hello, mate. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an interesting one, I think. Uh, so I've come back to the Valleys to try and uh, get out of the city for a bit, I think. So, yeah, it's going all right. Parents have been good, family's good, so it's always good to look after them, I suppose. Was there a bit of nostalgia coming back or sort of, you know, reconnecting with old friends via WhatsApp or was it just complete sort of isolation there's straight a, away? There's a lot of terrible football chat, let me tell you that. And there's, uh, <laughs> there's some betting on the virtual nationals, so we'll see how that goes as well. <laughs> um, I know you're a busy man, mate. Well, well, not as busy as usual, but still a busy man. So shall we just crack on and get started? Let's go for it, mate. Let's get straight into it, Sam, and talk about your journey. So first of all, just tell me about your early life, where you grew up. I know you said you lived in the Valley, so a little bit about that, your teenage years, and, and whether you had any early mental health experiences you could pinpoint looking back. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so... Yeah, I grew up in a small town, um, like I say, in the valleys. Um, everybody knows each other. Like we could see the back of my nan's house from the front of a, from our front garden, um, one of those type of places. Yeah, so it's, it was uh, an interesting place growing up. You know, people, it's very, very much a community feel. You know, when I say everybody knows everyone, everybody knows everyone. And uh, really try and help out and muck in for each other where we can. So I lived, um, lived in a little town called Mountain Ash for 10 till I was 10. Um, I got two older sisters who are a fair bit older than me. Um, so yeah, just had some very interesting conversations watching them grow up. They're 13 years older than me, so uh, there's a big gap. So that was quite interesting. Uh, and then we moved up to a little town called Aberdeer, which is a much bigger town now. Um, and yeah, that's where I went to secondary school. Played a lot of rugby then growing up. Um, and I think that was probably it's probably take me. I didn't didn't really clock onto it at the time. I would say about how, just how intrinsic that rugby mentality is, you know, especially with, with the Valleys. And, and when I say the local rugby clubs are the heart of the town, they really, really are, you know. Um, everybody comes down on a Saturday afternoon to watch it. And if there's a big game, I remember when I was um, playing my youth rugby when I was about 16, 17, we got to the Welsh quarterfinal. And I've never seen so many people come to watch a under-19s rugby game in my life, you know. Um, so yeah, and it, it means a lot to people. So I think that yeah, it probably took me a fair while to get until I went away to university to really clock onto that um, and some of the traits that you see people exhibiting and, and what have you. So yeah, it was an interesting one. Um, and yeah, like I say, went to uni and then I live up in London now, which is well, generally I do. Um, so it's an interesting one going from there and seeing how different the places are. 
In the Valley, Sam, was mental health ever discussed? Was toxic masculinity something that was quite prevalent back then? Or, or was it just mental health, just not even a thing, really? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Fred. And I would say when I was living here, uh, I would say definitely not. Um, I think now it's... I'd like to think it's a little bit different. And I think you see, especially with things like Movember, which is something that I'm quite passionate about, the Welsh rugby team, who are big, big advocates of it, are, are the absolute idols for these people, you know. Um, and so that's, I think, kind of opened the doors a bit, which is, which is really positive for me. Um, but no, I would say, to be honest, when I was living here, it was not something that people spoke about at all. Mm. And, and you spoke about rugby obviously being massive in Wales and it's, it's, it's probably akin, the way you describe the under-19s game and, and the local participation is almost akin to a sort of mini version of how it is in America when you get you know, college games being 80,000 people come to yeah, see really. basically university students play, play rugby or American football in their case. Um, rugby is obviously a national sport in Wales and, and one over only about a few that, you, that you're actually really good at. Um, however, this, this, uh, <laughs> however, this ambition among young Welsh boys to play for to, for young Welsh boys to play rugby whether it's for for Wales or one of the one of the four professional regional clubs can I think quite easily be corrupted by toxic masculinity you know a Wales online investigation in 2018 found that steroid use in Welsh rugby at the time of the article being written was at very dangerous levels uh, and the article described performance enhancing drugs or peds as an open secret in one section is this something that you witnessed growing up or was it sort of a was it a sort of you know open secret like the article describes or are you aware of now of how you know boys back home maybe were either you suspected of using them or how it crept into the sort of masculine culture as well yeah it's uh it's definitely a conversation that takes place let's put it that way mm. um and especially like i say when people are kind of when you come out of district would be under 15s and then there's the regional selection for the under 16s they, that's when it gets quite serious um and i think the people that that are at that level, they'd be stupid to take it because they they just would get caught. Um, but it's when you've got your people playing at senior level that are actually playing for proper clubs, that's when they kind of because they kind of want that bit more to get. Um, so yeah, like I say, it's something that people know about, but I, I wouldn't say that's a, a Welsh specific thing. To be honest, you know, you see it quite a lot, especially with like rugby league and what have you, mm. um, which is a little bit different. So yeah, yeah I wouldn't for say sure. it's just a Welsh thing, but it's, it's definitely a thing that people speak about, you know. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. It's definitely, not, it's definitely something that I think is, is more widespread than just a Welsh question, but specifically to Welsh rugby, I guess it's still mm. probably a problem in the lower levels. Uh, yeah. As much as you as you love rugby, Sam, and, and I, I love rugby as well, and I think there's massive positives in, in, in grassroots rugby culture. Do you think in some ways there's been a negative um aspect of it in maybe adding to the toxic masculinity cocktail do you think in in stopping men from speaking out about their mental health because of sort of the bravado or or one-upmanship gym culture it's fostered for some men or perhaps that sort of rugby attitude of just get on with it even if you've got like a broken arm or broken leg you know some players have carried on with horrific injuries and somehow made it to the end of a game 100 percent, mate um i think that's a that's a, a spot on uh i would say of the people that i know growing up there's some of what I would maybe describe as the, the toughest exteriors, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of the way it is here, you know? The, the men really are expected to be the breadwinners, you know, their fathers and grandfathers were down the mines, the sole income earner. Um, and I think that that inherently will stick. Uh, and I think it'd take a fair, a fair bit to change that. Uh, and I'm not saying that I think it needs to change, um, but I think if you can keep, kind of keep that, kind of keep that desire and, 
to really want to do as much as you can for yourself and for your family, then that's that's kind of what makes Welsh people the way we are a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I think the more and more that you can get these kind of idols in maybe the rugby sphere or any other sphere, uh, for for a lot of people, like I say, have grown up because. You know, places like up in the north, you know, it's these industrial towns, they're very, very similar to how we are down here. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting one. Mm. Uh, and just before we get on to university, Sam, who, who's the person we meet at this point when you're playing rugby? You know, I'd like, to, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Sam we meet here and also just about the positive aspect of rugby and what benefits did it give you growing up? Did it give you a sense of belonging? Did it, did it give you a sense of purpose? Um, maybe a distraction from sort of adolescent adolescent issues or or maybe things that might have been going wrong at school you know what can you tell me about how rug, what rugby gave to you and the person we meet yeah. here yeah absolutely Fred. i think that's a brilliant question um i'm just trying to think back now you know um i think rugby was always you know when you say and, and as i said about the the thing in the community that everybody wants to be a part of you do want to be a part of it you know you want to be playing on that pitch when i remember like i say that game i spoke about i got subbed off i was gutted absolutely gutted um but I was there, you know, I played um, and that's that's the big thing that everybody wanted to get involved with. But rugby teaches you and I think generally team sports teach you a huge amount of camaraderie. Um, and yeah, I, I think I, I quite enjoyed my school time, but a lot of the boys that I played rugby with were necessarily academics. Um, not that I'm saying that's a bad thing at all, but it was kind of nice for me to then have that kind of different group to maybe some of the other boys that I spent some time with or some of my other friends. So. Yeah, rugby was massive for me, um, and I had I had a big knee injury when I was about 14, 13, 14. And I remember after I did it, the, the only thing I wanted to do was get back and play rugby. The only thing I wanted to do was get back and play rugby. So that gave me a massive sense of purpose there, uh, and having that at such a young age um, was, yeah, it was really beneficial and really quite important. Mm. And just quick, just touching, I just wanted to touch quickly on, on the injury that you had, Sam. Obviously, I don't think, I really don't think that the mental health aspect of long-term injuries is discussed a lot in rugby. Is that something you would agree with? And how was the impact on your mental health when you were going through that long-term injury? Because I think for a lot of players in professional level for any sport, especially rugby and football, when they have a long-term injury, they're, they're, they're sometimes sort of not banished, but they're, they're not at the training ground, they're not allowed to no, be right. there maybe from, by the manager, they're not allowed to be around the squad, so they get that isolation. Is that something you would agree with or, or share that sentiment? Yeah, I think, um, especially nowadays, and I think maybe even with football now, I've seen something with um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek recently. Uh, he was standing up and, and speaking and saying, you know, I'm however old, in his early 20s, this big young thing that everybody wants to, to see develop and grow. And he's like, I just keep getting buggered with these injuries, you know, and I keep getting stuck with them. And, and yeah, the, the times are tough, you know, and you see a lot of very promising players having to retire really early or um, little things like that. We've just seen one recently with Wales. Uh, he suffered a concussion or a neck injury, uh, one of our best prospects, and now he's, he's retired at 22, you know, mm. and, and the impact of that will be massive for him, you know, it mm. will be massive. I guess I want to talk about how it might be seen as the be-all and end-all to reach Welsh, you know, Welsh professional rugby, whether it's Newport Grand Dragons or whether it's, you know, Wales mm. national team itself. Do you think there's a problem here in that so many boys are seeing it as the be-all and end-all, maybe chasing that dream and not perhaps giving focus to, A, other pursuits, so it stops them becoming sort of one very narrow-minded or very single-focused, and also maybe it, it stops them from uh, devoting time to their academic studies as well? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question. And um, one of the things I think that's been really positive, I would say maybe in the last 
eight to ten years, I would say, the the college game in rugby has become a, a fair a, a, a fair size now, and they're they're performing at some decent levels, and they do their their elite performance code uh, providers of acad- uh, academics and of rugby, so they get a, a trade or a qualification of some kind. You can do your A levels alongside, and that that's been a big development, I would say, because I think. Wales is one of the only countries in the world that I would say rugby is an everyday man's game. Um, and if you look at the rest of the world, it's very much a private school. Mm. Even in places like South Africa, it's all a school. Oh, yeah. New Zealand um, may be the only ex- other exception, probably, by and well, large. Well, the boys' schools there are Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that's true. That's everybody, true. Everybody plays, but like, those games are broadcast on TV to the whole country. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah the, 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 woman, the old woman in the shop can give you your stats. I think that's always the, uh, that's always the thing I hear when people go yeah, to absolutely. New Zealand. Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable, but... I think that's been a huge shift for Wales rugby because prior to that, like when he was non-professional, you see Neil Jenkins, who was one of Wales' best ever players. He used to work in his family's video shop in a Saturday morning in the town centre and then stroll across to Sardis Road and play for Pontypridd at the top level, you know? And that's, you're talking 30 years ago there, maybe mm. a little bit longer. It's mm. nothing, you know? Mm. Um, so that's been, I think, a really positive shift to give people that second chance because not everybody's going to play for Wales. Um, there was one recently, the Wales under-20s captain, a young lad, he, um, they were debating whether he was going to go professional, but he was still working for his old man's business and getting a, a trade of some kind there as well. And he's, he's managed it alongside and, and they've been happy to do that. So I think there is a positive shift and hopefully that will continue. Mm, and that's good news. I just wanted to talk, say one more question, a couple more questions now about rugby. Sound. I think it's been a really sort of good tangent. Um, the first question I wanted to ask is, I think the levels of sort of rugby mad enthusiasm are similar to England in football mad enthusiasm, especially in schools. I also think that, I mean, I'm probably sure, I'm probably sure you, you share the sentiment as well that football in this country in schools was often used as a social hierarchical, hierarchical tool. I, was, I always loved football. I always loved watching it. I always loved playing it. I wasn't very good at it. Let's be, I'll be honest. And I think if you're not good at it, in a lot of schools, it's used as a social exclusionary tool. It's used as a way of sorting, you know, the hierarchy out, basically. Is that something that was present in rugby? And did you find yourself quite fortunate that you happened to be quite good at it so you could navigate school by being good at rugby and therefore sort of fitting in a bit more? Is that Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a great question because uh, if, if any of the boys I went to school with listen to this, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But we had kind of two teams, really, who people played for. And uh, we always wanted, I played for the team in the local town, Aberdeer, and then there was another team and we always wanted to get a game against them because they would be in our school team. We didn't have enough players, obviously, to have two teams um, and we always wanted to get a game against them. And we never, we got one, I think it was in like May of year 11, we managed to get one. And uh, oh, the hype for that was hilarious. It was so funny. Um, but yeah, it was, it, I, I think... In, in that sense, people within the rugby sphere, yes. So people who played for maybe two different clubs, I would say yes. Um, but outside of the rugby sphere, I don't think necessarily that many people tried to, mm. to get involved, um, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing because, they, yeah, they probably excluded themselves from something that might have been able to offer them something outside of rugby, right? You know, say some of the things we spoke about earlier with team sports, might have you. Um, but kind of the people who didn't play, almost didn't want to put themselves into that environment. Mm. And I imagine, especially when people go to university, like people who go and play rugby there, um, sorry, who don't play rugby, who've played rugby their whole lives because of that, I would say quite a similar situation. Mm. Um, so, the, yeah, I think this is an interesting one. I guess it, on the one hand, it sort of helps that rugby is quite a physical sport, so you can't really play it in the playground. <laughs> so, therefore, so, you yeah. don't have the opportunities to exclude other kids who want to play, I guess, because football is a bit different. <laughs> play on um, the concrete. Yeah. Um, 
you get to we get to university now, and, and where you went to Plymouth University, a, a complete new city, and where this is where you meet friend of the pod Alex Hensman. Who's the Sam we meet at this point, and how did you find adjusting to university life? Yeah, um, a great question. Um, I think getting involved in that youth rugby sector before I went to uni, the kind of drinking culture is quite common and quite prevalent. Um, so that was something that I probably, in reflection took a bit too far in my first year of uni, um, trying to influence people to, to get involved with me, probably um, bit Billy BB as we'll say. Um, and yeah, I think early doors, definitely a big a big thing that I was trying to yeah get everybody or show people how cool I was because I'd done all this before, you know. Um, but no, that was that was a big learning curve for me, uh, looking back, I would say. You know, it's not, it's not something that I would have changed um, mm. because I could say I am, you know me, Fred, I'm pretty... I'm pretty out there. Um, it's pretty important. It's yeah. important to say that as well. You know, it's pretty important. I think it's important to say that. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it's it's different, you know, because a lot of my friends hadn't. They may have, uh, I think w- with us, to be honest with you, you, you don't have to be 18 to drink everywhere, right, in, in the valleys, let's be frank. Um, so it's, yeah, whereas a lot of people, for example, people that are born in like July, August, and then go to uni in September, they wouldn't have even been able to go to, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Mm, mm. Um, so that's... That's something that yeah, I probably on reflection here maybe. Um, took yeah, I I think I think it's, it's important that you shared that as well, Sam. I think it's also important to said that you don't regret it because there's 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 obviously lots of reckless things that we both did in university. <laughs> and looking back, you know, it's it's very easy to say, oh, I could have done this differently. But I think it's important to get to a point where you can reflect and say, look, I don't regret that, but I can I can reflect on how my how I've grown and how I wouldn't do that now or. Um, I'm pleased that I did those experience then so I can be the person that I am today. We get to second year now, and it's fair to say this is where your interest in mental health really begins, Sam. Just talk to me a bit about why this interest was sparked in this period of your life. Yeah, it was a really interesting one. So a um, good friend of mine, um, so we were involved with the Biomedical Science Society in my course, and um, he decided that, that Mind was the charity that they wanted to support. Now, that was a big shift for me because it wasn't really something that I was familiar with um, prior to that. I think, like I said, looking back on my times when I was at, uh, studying and, sorry, when I was living at home and before I went to uni, it was something that probably was spoken about but didn't really mean anything to me because I, I wouldn't have said that I'd gone through any challenges myself at that point. Um, but then, yeah, when you go to university and you learn about it and learn about the scale of it more than anything... Um, and and um, especially with, you see people that university can be a very lonely place for a lot of people, you know. Mm. Um, and that's yeah, that was something that really surprised me. Uh, and the three and four campaign was was definitely something that I wasn't aware of before. And I think all it takes is is your eyes to be opened by that uh, one time, and, and it, that really has been the case for me. Uh, yeah, I would say mm. that. And, w- and would it be fair to say this was where you became educated on mental health? Would you say? Yeah, massively. Um, like I say, my very good friend of mine was the, the the big pioneer in all of this and really trying to f- force it through the society sector. Um, and I think even since then, you see, even just the, the Plymouth University, they've they've been shouting a lot more about it um, and making it more common talk. And that's that's my big thing is trying to make this a more mm. common conversation. Um, mm. And yeah, just use my my kind of experience, I suppose. And that's really good to hear, Sam. What were some of the most important things that you learned about mental health for yourself in this period um about the conversation and also how to help others 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think being quite uh, an outspoken, quite people could say loud. Um, an extrovert. Uh, yeah, <laughs> ah, mate. Um, I've always been quite open, I think. And that's kind of because I, I, I find it very difficult to not keep secrets, but I, I do find it difficult to, if I, if I need to say something or I feel like I need to say something, I've got a group of people that I know I could go to individually or collectively and, and have that conversation, which mm. I, I'm very, very fortunate to have. Um, and that comes quite natural to me. Now, I'd say probably my big learn from that was just how different people are in that respect. One of the kind of support blanket that they feel like they have, but also their, their openness and approach to, to, to getting that conversation started. Um, so I would say my big learning was, was definitely that people are very different to me um, and the way they approach things is, is very different and that's, that's fine, you know? Mm. After you graduated, you decided to stay in education and moved to Bath University to study for a master's, another new city where you didn't know anyone. First of all, was that a tough decision to stay in education? Uh, and what was it like having to adjust again to a, a completely new setting away from your roots? Yeah, that's a great. So it was it was definitely something that I wanted to do. Um, I was able to, to change course. So I went from doing my undergrad in, in biomed to a master's in management, uh, a really interesting course for people who haven't done business before and looking to where I've been able to get to um, with my career since then. It's been a decision I'm very happy with and very, uh, very proud of. But yeah, it was, it was like starting afresh, you know, and like say being that kind of extroverted person who uh, people used to come to my house for pre-drinks every week, uh, maybe more than once a week, to go into Bath, that was a very, very different case. Um, and I didn't really know a great deal of people. I was very fortunate to have um, lived with a friend of a friend uh, who was a very good friend of mine now, a very close friend. And both went through, yeah, a, a bit more of a challenging time, um, to, yeah, it was it was tough because so you go from being that kind of this is a terrible analogy, but big fish and a big fish hand, in the yeah. I was right? about to say you about to know you were about to say that <laughs> relatively. It's all relative. It's all relative. Um, but yeah, to to literally not knowing a great amount of people, and I was like I say, I'm very fortunate. I met a lot of great friends in the time I was there. Started playing football with my housemates team. Uh, made some great some great mates there and some great memories. So, but yeah, it was it was a tough time. Um, and I was still going down to Plymouth quite a lot to see some of my friends that had gone away on placement. Um, so I was spending a fair bit of time there. Um, and yeah, also spending probably a lot, obviously Bath's a lot closer to home than Plymouth, but I was going home a lot more. Mm. I found myself kind of not needing to do it, but wanting to do it, which was probably a surprise for me um, and probably a surprise for my family. Um, not that I've ever gone away or tried to stay away. But yeah, it's a, a very different mindset, I would say. Mm. Uh, and during this period, Sam... It's obviously fair to say that this was a this was a moment where you you actually struggled with your mental health D during it. Did you so what what did you what helped you get you through it? You know who supported you? Did you tell anyone about it at the time when you were struggling? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Fred. And I would say, probably leaning back on what I, I mentioned earlier about being so open and knowing where my support network was 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 massively important for me um, because I had friends who had gone then graduated and gone on to study again further afield um, and there's some very close friends of mine but being able to to speak to them uh, and like I say it was nice that I had that kind of home release that I could come home in an hour or I could go to Plymouth in an hour and a bit um, but no I would say that was that was probably the big thing I had a very like I say my, the housemate that I lived with we had a very very close relationship uh, it's just a, kind of the two of us really in the house and then we'd driving to uni every day, sit in the library every day and work together and what have you. So, But that puts its, its own strains on, on things, you know, when you're um, spending all that time together, it does mm. get 
quite a challenge. And, and mm. don't get me wrong, we snapped at each other. But um, yeah, it's, I think we both kind of got it. And we probably never said that it's a tough time, but got it. Um, and really, yeah, that was a big help. So like I say, very, very good friend of mine now um, and a very good experience to look back on. Mm. Uh, and after you finished your master's, Sam, you, you experienced a pretty traumatic moment in your life, which was when you found out a friend you knew from University of Plymouth, I'm, I'm correct in saying, took his own yeah. life. If you could, and without obviously revealing too many details, just talk to me, talk to me about how you found out, how you felt, uh, and what kind of person he was, with, you know, whilst, whilst, whilst being yeah. uh, as private as we can. Of course. Um, so I think that was a really interesting one. So it was actually when... So when I was studying at Bath, I'd gone back to Wales um, and some friends we were taking. So the housemate that I lived with and um, so the housemate that I lived with is a good friend of mine's best friend from home. Um, so we were all in the same kind of friendship group and we were going back to Wales to watch the AJ um, Carlos Takam fight in Cardiff. So um, I have, it's, it's a story, it does have context. We were all um, supposed to go on the Friday night. I was going to drive back on the Friday night and we were going to stay at my parents' house and then go down early Saturday morning because some of my friends at home were coming as well. Then the boys decided that they wanted to stay in bar for the Friday night and have, um, have a night out there. Anyway, so my friend who was, I was just having a go at him all morning because he needed to go to my parents' house, drop off, and then we needed to go down to, to Cardiff for the event. Anyway, he was ringing me and I was like, Jack, I've had enough. Stop calling me to tell me you're going to be late or whatever. And he's then he says, no, uh, and then, then drops the news. Uh, and I think that was, that was a huge wake-up call to me. To Yeah, and looking back, a very similar, I would say, in, in certain respects of that kind of rugby culture, um, the friend that we lost, um, very similar to me and, and a lot of the boys that I knew growing up in that respect um, and maybe that that toxic masculinity part got, went a bit too far um, and I think that was something that was was yeah it was tough to deal with and like mm. I say I think I, I find comfort in the fact that I was in in Wales at that time now I I, I definitely find comfort in that in, in seeing that it definitely, it, it just turned a screw in my mind on, on the day, mm. you know, and then it, it was kind of that I was, I was going to, the, to, to Cardiff with some very good friends of mine from Wales as well. Um, and yeah, just starting those conversations, you know, and mm. it, that, was, that was the real light bulb moment for me. Mm. Uh, and how did you feel in that moment when you found out, you know, if you could just tell me a bit about what was going through your mind? Was it, was it shock, obviously? Was there sort of pain, anger, you know, uh, sort of maybe a bit of denial that how this could have happened um, or maybe a bit of both? Yeah, so uh, shock, definitely the big one. Um, disbelief is probably the main word mm. I would use um, mm. because, like I say, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced something like that myself. And when, like I say, referring back to my second year when I didn't realise the scale of it, it still probably didn't set in for another two years that this is, this is everywhere um, and it does happen to people, all, you know. So mm. that, was, that was probably the big one, I would say, for me would be that, that disbelief and then, yeah, leading into the mm. light bulb moment. Obviously, this is, you know, a horrifically tragic moment. And I think whenever any person I hear takes their own life, it really affects me quite deeply, even when I don't really know them and I see it on Twitter or something. Um, and every person who takes their own life um, has their own story and we need to sort of listen to that and make sure that we can at least try and learn something and take something forward from from their memory and from their passing. But But for you, you've turned this negative into a positive. Just explain to listeners how you've done that. 
Yeah, thanks, Fred. Um, I think from there, my big... So I, I then, like I say, within nine to 12 months or so, was, was working in London um, and, again, went to a, another stage in my life of where I was moving to another new city, was in a spareroom.com house job, very, very fortunate with the people that I live with, some some amazing friends with some amazing memories, uh, people from all over the world. So, yeah, but then Movember really struck a chord with me that that was something that I needed to do and use maybe as, as a platform and probably a more recognised platform to, to kind of generate that momentum there um, to, yeah, to really kickstart what, what my kind of um, mental health advocacy journey is. So... In my first year, my, my graduate scheme, I was out on the road um, and flogging toothpaste. Um, so that was an interesting one. You're driving around the streets in northwest London with this moustache. And I remember that, I, that. There we go. I started with the moustache. And uh, <laughs> You should say for the listeners that you've got a massive tash as well, uh, growing one for isolation. <laughs> yeah, my, my quarantine moustache. I've given it a dodgy name, but I'm not going to go into that. Quarantash. Um, <laughs> Do you want me to tell you? <laughs> no, let's keep, let's keep that off the pod just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, and then I was going into, into practices that, I, that I'd been to loads of times and uh, I remember a woman said to me, oh, we had, um, we had a different guy two weeks ago when you came in. I was like, no, no, that was me. They just obviously didn't re- recognise me, right, with this moustache. And, and that kind of struck another call with me before. If it's something as trivial as only having a moustache rather than a beard and that's how people tend to interpret people differently or see people differently imagine how that how much that can be exacerbated by other things that people might do you know for example if people go quieter or they don't see you so often I remember when I finished in that role and that everybody had my number used to get calls all the time I thought oh god I can't imagine how many calls I'm going to get and genuinely I haven't had a single call in the nine months since I left that role (laughs) right so if you the way I kind of think about that Fred is that you kind of think of it as the, the be-all and end-all when you're there because it's your job, right? You want to make a good impression. and But the, the world moves very transactionally. Yeah, the world moves right? on, mate. You know? Um, so, yeah, you like to think you have an impact, and I'm sure I did. Um, but you never know. Um, and, yeah, I think that's an interesting one. Anyway, so then when I moved into my into my office job, um, but the very, like I say, a big company, I knew that this was the time that I needed to really step it up um, and I managed to, to use my network, get in chat with some of the boys that I thought might want to get involved and, and uh, my company has a fantastic position in with, with mental health and starting those conversations. They, I, I really do feel like they do as much as they can to try and create that support network for people so that they can make these, com- these conversations more, more commonplace. Um, and there was an existing mental health work stream. They only really had two or three, two or three members um, and I thought, yeah, I need to go behind this and lend my support to it. Anyway, managed to start a, a Movember group um, across the British and Irish business. There were about 20 of us in total that, that got involved. Uh, and we made two, I think it was £2,700 this year, which was, yeah, an amazing sum of money. But the, the biggest achievement for me on that, we did, um, I did a lunch and learn. So lunch and learn, literally we bought, uh, got some pizza in from one of the big chains. I don't want to spoil you on advertising, Fred. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, we got that in and I thought, right, okay, people might, even if they're just coming for the pizza, at least they're going to listen. And it was amazing. It was the best attendance I've ever seen at a Lunch and Learn. Um, and where I kind of shared this journey and some tips uh, and things that I've seen through Movember Foundation and other support networks to really help people and try and start those conversations. Because it doesn't need to be a crisis moment um, to start a conversation. And that's one of the big things that we tried to try to get across. 
let's dive a bit deeper into your November campaign now, Sam, and just talk a bit about how you've become a, a mental health advocate as well. Um, as you began to raise more money in November and, and explain the reasons why you wanted to do this, people began confiding in you about their mental health. And, and that's something that really... I think probably took me a while to get used to. And it's, I don't think I'm ever still quite adjusted to it now, but I'm certainly better able to, to talk to people about it and, and uh, articulate myself better, I think. Was that something that you struggled at first with or maybe still do now? What, what's your sort of process behind that? Yeah, I think I'm definitely still on a, a, a massive development piece and a huge learning curve. Um, and again, I think in reflection, it's, it's all about listening, right? Um, it, for me, it's all about listening. And I think it's been a huge learn for me in just stopping talking, you know? And I think, no, seriously. It's true. No, it's true. It's true. I have the same. I mean, honestly, like, it's, it's been a big thing for me because I think what you always want to try and do is help people and, and give them, and especially I think I'm a big, I like to think of myself as a solutions man, right? I, I don't like to give problems to people, highlight difficulties I want to try and help and give. And that's been a huge that's a huge part of my personality that I, I need to rein back when I'm having these conversations because you can't be the answer for people a lot of the time. And, and that was a massive learn for me. Mm. Um, and yeah, and just, just giving them a place that they, and a, and a, a comfort blanket, again, leaning back to some of the things I said earlier, that's just to, to know that they can just say what they want to say, they, what they need to say at that time. Um, and yeah, I would say that's been a, a huge learn for me, definitely something I'm still getting used to. Um, but also... Again, taking another positive is, is really helping me with, with my professional life and my personal life as well. And so I've been talking a bit um, and letting other people feel like they have more space to talk in and that Sam's not going to bash them for everything or anything that they say. Um, so that's been a huge learn for me uh, and something that I'm really, I'm really conscious of now, um, which I probably wasn't before. So again, another, another big learn uh, and another big positive for me. Mm, that's really good to hear, Sam. And I think it, I think it's important that we both say, you know, when people are confiding in us, it's really important that we all say, you know, we're not counsellors, we're not medical professionals. All we can do is listen um, non-judgmentally, give support when we can and and try and be there for that person. Have you sort of thought about, uh, you know, any ad, ad getting in touch with people about, you know, doing additional training, whether it's mental health first aid or or other sort of professional courses that you could try and do to improve this sort of aspect of your of your life? Yeah, that's a great question, Fred. And I think it's not something that I've uh, looked too much into, to be honest with you, in, in necessarily courses specifically. But what I would really, really recommend people to do is, is is take that piece of advice that you just mentioned there, is that you don't have to be a counsellor, you don't have to necessarily... But uh, going back to what I, I was mentioning earlier about it being... Um, it often, I would say, people think that it needs to be a crisis point before they not intervene, but what... The way I said, and then one of the big things I made in my presentation at work was how often do people pass in a corridor and just say, oh, how are you doing? You all right? And carry on walking, literally never stop. And I'm guilty of it, hands up, right? Um, sometimes. And it doesn't need to be that way. You know, you're seeing these people every day, a lot of the time, or however many times a week. I, and I think my kind of take on a lot of this stuff is that I think that those crisis moments for people, the really the worst days... I think a lot of that will probably come out, uh, not necessarily to every person, but I do think that will release this way. Or you'll know a lot of the time when people people are up, especially those that are close to you. I think it's the the kind of everyday toil that this kind of ticks and ticks away at people, and and that's where my big thing is. So, for example, 
here's a question for you, Fred. How, what, do you, what would you say is the most commonly used greeting in work chat? Email Ooh, chat, uh, like email, chat. email chat. I'd say, I'd say hope you're well. Absolutely, right? I have a big problem with hope you're well because... I think we had a chat about this the last time we yeah, spoke, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, mate. Like, it, it's just a weird one because... Do you? There's a sincerity piece, right? And I think that's the big thing for me. And that's It's an icebreaker. It's an email icebreaker, isn't it? Of course it is. But if you don't, if you don't, don't, like to me, my personal preference is if you don't care, don't say that to me. Uh, I would rather you either. But genuinely, I'll be honest with you, I have seen a hell of a lot more people using how are you or how's things. Because um, hope you're well. How do you reply to that? Yeah, great, thanks. In an email, you know, and then move on to the main body of the email, which is when somebody's asking you to do something, right? Um, but yeah, that's that, it's an interesting one, mm. you know, and yeah, I would say that's been a big learn for me. It's definitely something to think about. I think at the moment we're all using a very compassionate sort of hope you're safe and well at the moment with COVID-19, but I imagine, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, whenever this ends, people might be might go back to using hope you're well, just the, just the blanket one. So it's good, something's good to think about there. Just going back to your lunch and learn now, Sam, Just I just wanted to ask one question quickly about that. When you had that room full of people and... They were all there to, to hear your talk. And you, like you said, there'd, there'd never been this sort of level of participation before with a lunch and learn in your, in your workplace. What, what was that feeling like? You know, was that a big moment in your life? Yeah, I would say so. Um, like I, I'm quite used to, to doing presentations and things like that. And the nature of my, my first role with the company was, uh, was very presentation focused. And it was, it was a big learn. Um, but one thing that, and I probably didn't clock it at the time, but I'm now picturing myself standing in that room and the rest of the mental health team were all standing by the side of me. Now, that, in hindsight, is, it was a massive uh, kind of safety blanket that maybe I feel like I needed at the time. Um, and what I, my, my approach going into it, Fred, was that I felt like it might have taken somebody like me, um, who people might have seen as uh, one of the bigger characters, to, sh- to open up and talk about that kind of vulnerability piece and... Um, one of the examples that I used was talking about um, men being deemed a lot of the time as the cornerstone or the pillar of a community, right? Um, which is something that I've grown up with hugely, as we've spoken about before. But I said, why can't, uh, and I, I'm very visual, right? So I had three pillars on the screen and I said, why can't a man be deemed as a pillar or a cornerstone of the community for asking for help, um, for being vulnerable and for standing up for others? Because... That's something that we probably expect more from uh, from females, mm-hmm. if we're being... Stereotypically speaking, stereotypical, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's no reason why that should be the case. But that's, again, even if people took, took one of those three and maybe thought, OK, maybe this is something that I can do a little bit differently, that was a big thing. But no, I think the, the, main, the main thing that I took out of doing that Lunch and Learn was, one, the amount of people who said, I didn't know we had all of this support in place anyway, which was a massive, massive positive for my, for my employer. So I'm very, very grateful to them for that. Uh, and for also the conversations that I heard people talking about afterwards. And, and as we said, people confiding in me or, or sharing their experience with me or being showing their vulnerability and asking me to redirect them to certain places um, because they, they may have not felt like they wanted to put that pressure on me to be maybe the, the solution or the counsellor, but they, they felt safe to to ask me where should they go for help um and that that was really comforting and really positive um the yeah. um the concept you talked about there on the, of the three pillars sam i'd really i'd love i'd love to talk about it in the next topic with you how are you using 
the legacy, you know, from each of these Movember UK campaigns in your own life to help others, whether that's your friends or work colleagues, and, and how you, do you carry the memory of your, your dear friend who passed away as well? Yeah, that's a great question, Fred. And I think um, probably the main one is, is, is just just asking people how they are is, is, a, is a big thing for me. It sounds so trivial, right? Because, like I say, we do it so often, but that level of sincerity is, is not necessarily always there. Um, and I, I often think back to this on a much bigger scale, and this is funny, um, like where I live, everybody knows everybody. And even if you don't, if you walk past somebody in the street and you catch eyes with them, you'll say, all right. Now... You don't do that in London. <laughs> God, no, mate. You should have seen me on the tube for the first time. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a crazy one because you, you might, they might be one of the 10 people that you don't know in the town, but you don't expect an answer. Everybody, everybody's go-to response is, all right, that's it, right? And it's like, I remember when I went to uni and thought people don't do this, uh, now I think there's probably a reason why they don't do it is one, they don't care uh, a lot of the time, right? Or it's just weird to, to talk to people. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the latter uh, in no, London, see, isn't it? Honestly, mate. You get honestly, some looks. <laughs> it was a big learn. I started trying to... Somebody was wearing an Arsenal top, right? I'm a big Arsenal fan. And I was like, brilliant. This is a chance to talk to somebody about Arsenal. They did not open their mouth once. <laughs> did not open their mouth. And I was just there like, hello? Okay, anyway, so I, I, I took a bit of self-awareness there. But no, that was a big learn for me was to, uh, and the legacy that I'm trying to pass on is that you, you can make, these conversations can just take place more naturally and, and they need to. Um, and I think that's where my responsibility is as somebody who may be a bit more outspoken or people who would say is, is not somebody who, who, uh, who maybe show weakness or vulnerability is, is to do that myself and, and live the message that you preach, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's a massive one for me. Um, and that's, that's something that I like to think I'm trying to pass on. Our final topic of conversation, Sam, and it's one I have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I know there's a bit of extenuating circumstances right now, but how is it for you at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question, Fred, and thanks for asking. Um, I think, surprisingly, pretty good, Um with all things considered, um, and I think that's one of the things that I, I think is really important is to talk about the positive times when you are in, in, a, in a good place, all things considered, right? And um, I, I know my team at work where everybody was kind of saying, oh, Sam, you're going to be, you're going to struggle with this because I, I love wandering around the office and just talking to people because I need to. I can't be sat at my desk all the time. I just cannot do it. Um, and we had a lot of video chats and things go in and people, and yeah, and it's been a really positive that I know uh, my manager, for example, and people who are really close to me have obviously clocked that they thought that I'd be having a tough time um, and put in like daily chats or weekly chats, wherever it might be. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's good, all things considered. I've spent more time at home than I have done for a long time. Um, my I've got a little niece, which has been quite... I managed to see her in the kind of early days of quarantine. Um, but that's been a little bit challenging, not being able to, to be here and not see her as much um, and see my sister... Uh, and what have you but we've been doing like for example we did a Friday two weeks in a row now we've done a FaceTime quiz so all my mother's side of the family we've done a little FaceTime quiz um, and that's been good and yeah it's been very busy at work we've had we've been busier than ever uh, and very fortunate to be able to do all of our work from from home and not have any disruptions there you know in the grand scheme of things having to do a, a, a meeting via Skype or or one of the other 
tools is is nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and it's been really positive to see the company that I work for, the ways that everybody is leaning out and, and the, not necessarily just to have the NHS, obviously being in a, in a pharmaceutical space, it, that's a very easy connection that people would make, but also just the people that I know at work, what they're doing for their local communities. Um, and that, that I find a lot of comfort in that, in that, yeah, I did pick the right the right place um, and feel like I'm, I'm somewhere where I need to be. Mm. And if you felt comfortable saying, Sam, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I think that's a really, uh, really good question, Fred. And um, I would say imposter syndrome is something Yep, that I share it as well. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, um, that's something that I've... You know, I, I like to think of myself as quite a confident person, but um, a lot of the time, like I'm, I'm in a job now which I've been in for nine months or so. In the grand scheme of things, I know nothing, right? I know, not in comparison to a lot of people, I don't have the experience, but... I don't think that, I never let that, I try not to let that get to me a lot of the time and I try to speak what I feel in the moment is the right thing to do, obviously in the right circumstance. But I'm finding a lot of, um, a lot of the time that, yeah, sometimes I should have reined back a little bit and, and this is again, this is a learning curve that I'm, I'm on now and, and trying to still, but I think again, when I was in my first role, I was kind of, like I say, out on the road a lot. I was coming home to a, an empty house a lot of the time. It's a five-bed house and it's empty. Um, that's a challenge, you know, and you're trying to lean on the support network that you've got. So I would say imposter syndrome is definitely one that I'm sure a lot of people in in similar kind of space um, with a big office, you walk in the big front door, you see the security people and are like, God, do I actually work here? Um, but I think, again, it's uh, maybe another one that, that I'm quite conscious of is, is diversity um, and and I really don't think this is the case, but I have I have asked the question to myself is, have I ticked the diversity and inclusion box just being Welsh? Because mm. right? I don't know many other Welsh people that are in similar positions to me with with grad schemes or anything like that. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm special in any way, right? I'm really, really not. But I have asked that question to myself is, am I ticking the diversity box? Uh, and when I think about how I am and how I've grown up compared to have some of my friends and, and really good colleagues. Like It doesn't make a difference in my mind, but I have asked the question to myself, um, which I, I've, made, I've made this comment a couple of times with some, some people who are quite close to me, and they said they would never have thought that. But now, a reflection, you do, you do question it, because um, diversity is not just about race, ethnicity, religion. You know, it, it, it ticks a lot of other boxes. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would say those. Mm. Uh, and what age do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings, whether it was imposter syndrome or something else, weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Uh, I would say maybe about a year ago. Okay, so very recent then. Maybe about a year ago. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, and like I could say, I think leaning back on on all of the other things that we've spoken about, it's when that starts, uh, it's hitting home, right? It's, it's when it actually starts to... Because uh, I never question my purpose. I think that's one of the things I... One of the big comfort blankets for me is, is I know and I think throughout my whole journey of university, school, and then coming into a commercial workspace, is that I've known why I'm there, I think, or I know where I'm trying to get to. And that's something that, for me, is really important in, in managing my mental well-being, is I believe that I'm making the right steps for me to to do what I want to do and to be where I want to be. And, and that's 
that's a very important thing. And again, when I spoke about leaning on those those positive sides, that's something that's that's very important. Um, mm. But I'd say, yeah, it's probably taken me only really really come into play in the last year or so. Mm. And what th- things do you find in life, Sam, that, that might trigger your mental health? So this might be things people might say. That's something I find a lot of things that certain things people might say to me are triggers, um, sounds, sensations, environments. Uh, what what your sort of triggers would you say if you if you figured them out yet? Yeah, I think this is, again, this has been something that um, I've been trying to to, to understand better myself, to be honest. And, and recently, some of the conversations I've been having have been around understanding what your, what your triggers are. Um, so in, actually, I'm very, uh, I'm pretty, fi- not fiery, that's wrong, I'm a pretty passionate bloke, I like to think. Um, but that's just the way I am. And, and I don't think that's going to change. Um, but I try to, to rein it in when I can. But I probably take things a bit too personal sometimes yeah. uh, and think that somebody making a comment is about Sam rather than Sam who does XYZ job or Sam has said XYZ thing, right? And that's been something that I've really tried to get my head around recently is, and I've literally, I've got a page in my notebook which I have written down triggers and I'm, I'm kind of adding to them because my, one of the big things I've, big piece of advice somebody gave to me was once you better understand what those triggers are, you can help to, to, to kind of harness them and, and kind of change them and not change them necessarily, but reflect on them. Um, and that's something that I've, I've taken a big learning curve with recently, Fred. Um, mm. Yeah, I'd say that. Perfect. That's really good to hear, mate. And that, that, that's, that's given me food for thought, to be honest, because I, I kind of know what some of them are. And, but every time I sort of have one, I remember what one was. So I might actually write some of those down and see what I could do about that. So yeah, that's really good to hear, Sam, that you, you're at least sort of trying to understand what they are, which is good. What, what tools and methods do you use in your, in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Uh, you know, which ones have you found that have worked and which ones haven't? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And like I say, um, a lot of mine, which is, is quite a tough thing at the minute, is, is a sport as a release, you know. Um, I've played a lot of sport growing up and... That's something that I haven't necessarily been able to do so much since I've been working. Um, I tried to join a football team for a little bit, didn't really fall in love with it. As And, and similarly, when I went to university, um, I didn't play rugby in my first year and then went to um, went back for my first summer, went back to play rugby and I thought, right, OK, I'm going to give it a go. I did the whole pre-season, played one pre-season game. I was like, nope, I hate it. And I just... and I've. I love my rugby, I love it, but I just don't see myself playing again for, for a long time. Um, but that's, yeah, so that was something that, so I've been playing a lot more like five-a-side, the guys have to work in that now, but um, I think the big thing that works for me is, is trying to um, get as close to my friends as I can uh, and really just being, having those open conversations, which for me, and I say I'm very lucky that they come quite naturally to me, um, but... I can't bottle stuff in. I just can't mm. do it. Um, when people talk about, like I are saying, about understanding people's triggers and when people are off, if I'm quiet, people know straight away. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a blessing and a curse for, for me and you, I think, mate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's been something that um, maybe the, the kind of extremeness of my extroversion is uh, a big blessing because people do reach out and put your arm around you. Um, and I've been very fortunate to, like I say, the support network that I've got around. Um, but I think... Going back to your question about things that maybe not have worked so well, um, again, it's keeping quiet and trying to mm. just 
get on with it. Um, and that's maybe leaning back to what we were saying about earlier with that kind of soldier on mentality that I've grown up surrounded by, um, which I don't think is any, any negative at all. But for me, it just doesn't work. Keeping mm. quiet and just trying to soldier through doesn't work. If I just need to have a five-minute rant... I know where the people are that I can literally just waffle. I can just go, get it off, and they'll. They've, I'm very lucky in that sense, uh, and that's something that I try to take myself. When you can tell people are there or need to say something, or they may be getting a little bit frustrated. I say this is probably uh, probably exacerbated in a workspace, but I will just if somebody sends me a message like, "Oh, just annoyed at this," or and I'll just say vent or rant. Interesting event, uh, and just like. <laughs> Just get just get it off like that. That works for me. And if people want to do that, go for it. You know. Mm. And, I, and I'm 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 a big advocate of that. Is just get it out. Just get it out. Let off your steam, however that might be. So that that's probably a better way of framing it. Is let out steam, however you feel like you need to do it. Do it. Mm. I just wanted to touch just really quickly on that on that extroversion point, Sam, because I think for me and you, we are both on the scale of extroverts, probably nine point five slash nineteen point five out of ten. Um, but I think it's a good thing if we are very quiet that people know that there might be something wrong with us. But actually, sometimes we might just want to take a step back from the conversation. We might just we might just not want to be a hundred percent on all the time. Is that something you found as well? That's a great question. I saw something recently. Um, you've obviously you've heard of, of FOMO, the fear of missing out. Have you heard of the new one that people are talking about? What's from? that? Is it, is it the is it the joy of missing out? Jomo, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Jomo, the joy of missing out, um, and. I'm still probably in the FOMO space, I would say, um, at the minute. But yeah, I think because I'm such a, uh, we do the thing called the colour color wheel at, at work and yellow is a big part of mine, which is that, it's called a sunshine yellow, which is where you get all your energy from people. Um, and no, I totally agree with you that sometimes people do need to dial down. Um, but where I kind of, for me, I have that is in my personal life. Mm. And if I just want to remove myself for a little bit, I'm very fortunate with the kind of setup that I've got at the minute of that that facilitates that. Um, and I found it probably a lot more recently. I would say even within 2020, I found myself burning out a little bit. And it mm. was probably because, again, a little bit busier at work and the weekends I generally wanted to, to load with as much as I can, as much sport, as much pub, whatever, with the boys and the, the network that I have. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have and very grateful for. But I found myself sometimes just thinking, God, Sam, you know, you just need a little bit of a break, mate, and mm. just give that to yourself. Um, and I would say, yeah, genuinely within the last two months or so, and that's something that I'd be more conscious of. So, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right there, Fred. Mm. I just want to talk, touch quickly on, on, on that concept of the pillars that we talked about earlier on in the pod, Sam, and how you said that, you know, men don't just have to be pillars of their community in regards to jobs or or however you want, you want to put it in a stereotypical way, but also pillars in asking for help and, and, and being vulnerable and showing emotion. Toxic masculinity is something that we try and break down a lot in this pod, Sam. But positive masculinity is something that I really want to try and put out there a lot as well. Do you think positive masculinity can be sort of woven into that idea? And what do you think it means to you? And, and what sort of examples could you give about maybe what a man has to exude when to be, to be described as having positive masculinity, maybe? Yeah, I think um, I think the big the big aspect of masculinity for me is strength, and maybe not support, but I would say strength. Now, how you choose or would like to channel that is probably the big lean that I would say. So, or how you define for, strength, maybe. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So if you would, if for example, a lot of people, it's li- literally physical strength or or endurance or, or whatever that might be. Um, but that would be the the big lean I would take on that is that the word every. If you asked a, a million people to describe a man or masculinity, I reckon strong or strength would come out pretty highly on that on that scale, right? And I would I would challenge people or, or open people up to to take that and say, what, what does strength mean to you? Now, um, the ways that I try to put that into my life is, is emotional strength and, and giving that support to people. Um, so that would, that's probably the big one for me because I think you can be really positive. You can, I, I, like I say, I've grown up with two sisters and I'm very close to my mother and I've always had friends who are girls. Um, and I've, since then, I've got a lot of friends that are, that are female, but, uh, and a lot of my friends who are female are very comfortable going the other way, right? So, but, contrastingly that's not the same case for a lot of people right so i think when you've grown up in that that space you're probably again stereotypically have had more maybe emotional conversations than a lot of kind of men's men in inverted commas um and that's something yeah that's a big lean that i would like um and and ask to the listeners of the pod to to maybe um think about themselves mm. And what more do you think we have to in, to, we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health, Sam? You know, are there things that y- you could maybe advocate on here, sort of like the ask twice rule, or maybe what I found a lot is, and, and this is in my own network as well as outside it, is that if a, if a man has something quite um, traumatic to, to share with a group chat or maybe they're going through a poor period of mental health, they'll say, right, lads, I've, I've, this has happened to me. Um, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm okay or, or, or whatever is the wording. And everyone will say, really sorry to hear that, you know, we're all here for you, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the time it ends at that sort of initial mm. arm of support maybe. So what, what more do you think we have to do, do you think? That's a great question, Fred, and, I, and I totally, uh, I'm totally with you on that. And I think that is very much the case a lot of the time. Um, I do, as as it is, I do think that it takes that kind of moment to, to tick and that maybe that light bulb moment in people's minds um, for that to really clock on. So, for example, one of the guys that I did Movember with, he says he gets a text in his group chat with his boys for a moment. He's in his 30s um, from one of his mates who suffered with testicular cancer when he was in his, in his early days. And he just texts the boys every, I think it's every two weeks, maybe every month or so, and just says, just check your nuts, lads. You don't want to end up like me or something like that. Right Now, he's, he's fully recovered, but... Um, yeah, and that's something that, for example, he does, and, and they take it in good jest, right? And he's he's really popular with it, and, and kind of makes a bit of a an angle with it. But um, one of the big frameworks that I really like from November is the Alec framework. Um, have you seen that one, Fred? Uh, I'm not aware of it, to be honest, mate. I'm afraid of a few others, but not that one. So that I, I think it's a really positive one. So it's called yeah, I say Alec, um, and then that's A is ask, and I would say just this doesn't necessarily just apply to um, mental health. This is generally Anytime you think somebody is going through something, this can be really beneficial. So A is ask, L is listen, E is encourage action, and then C, thinking with this, is check in. So I think that's a really positive framework. And again, going back to my, my kind of take on, on, on everything that we've spoken about is it doesn't have to be those crisis points for people to, to, to get involved. I think you can, you can do that all the time. Mm. Ask, listen encourage action and check in excellent sam and just finally how do you hope to take 
all of this forward? Um, and how do you plan to just keep that sort of mental health advocacy and that legacy going, really? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, I think the Movember campaign gives a really good public space to do that. What I'm hopefully going to try and do when I I'm, I'm like I say I'm a big fan of this and and really really do advocate it a lot is try and get somebody else or some of the other guys at the team to try and drive it on this year. Um, some of the other guys on the floor um, because I think as, as important as it is for people to to share their experience and why it means so much. Strength in numbers is a, is a huge, huge part of it. So I think that's where I have a role to play um, because it's been, it's been really positive for me and in, in getting a friendly face to a lot of people that I, I like to think that I'm friends with around the office, but maybe that's opened a few more doors for people and I would really encourage others to, if, if they feel confident enough or feel like they have the motivation to do it, if you can open a door, one door to one person to have one conversation that saves their life or saves the life of somebody that they know who might be going through something else. Because this, this is it, right? It doesn't have to just be you. It can be anybody in any aspect of your life. Um, and that, I think that's what I would really like to be able to do and to do more of, um, is keep opening those doors for people. If that's me talking about the way I am and how I, I've kind of come around on this journey. Um, and share those positive parts. Because, you know, when, when you go into a, a bad place or you've had a bad experience... The only way that you'll see the light in my in my eyes is is having something positive to reflect on, and that that's very relative for for a lot of different people. Um, whatever that positive is for you, is great, you know. And and not to to undermine anything because you never know what those milestones are for a lot of people, um, and what will, yeah. That, I'd say I'd say that. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. For Sam, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. Stay safe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>